Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. Uh, it's good to be back with you again. We are looking at a couple of interesting podcasts coming up in the next couple, a couple of politically motivated and politically driven ones, I guess. But I want to start uh, having a bit of a shout out to our new show sponsor, Stratus. Stratus is a uh, vaping system, a vaping pen and pods that has been designed to help people stop smoking. So that's the desire. This is out there to help people stop smoking. If you want to find out about it, head to vaporium.nz. And uh, it's the most affordable alternative to smoking because for a starter kit that could last you between two and four weeks, depending on how much you used it, it's 25 bucks. It gets you the pen, they get you three pods. Uh, and then after that, uh, you pay under 20 bucks to get another four pods. So in, if you, in other words, uh, the guys from Vaporium are saying that each pod should last each person several days, obviously depending on how much you use it. But if it should last several days to the average user, then that means one pack of four under 20 bucks could last you between three weeks and a month in theory. So that's why it is the most affordable alternative to smoking and a tool to stop people smoking. So there's been lots in the news about vaping uh, recently, but this is a product designed to hand to a smoker and say, why don't you stop smoking and move on to something that is better than smoking and more affordable than smoking to stop them smoking. Check them out at vaporium.nz. Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking, is who brings you the Department of Conversation. Um, hey, coming up today, a gentleman by the name of Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin is an American political commentator. He is a uh, host of the Rubin Report on YouTube. It's got over a million subscribers to it. Um, he is a former left-winger who is now a right-winger, and he's just released a book called Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in an age of unreason. Very much enjoy spending the best part of an hour with Mr. Dave Rubin. And we are live streaming with Dave Rubin. Good afternoon, New Zealand time, sir. It's good to be with you. It is the early evening. I guess it's about 6 o'clock or 5.30 or so here on the west coast of America. And I've been talking to, I've been doing interviews since uh, I got up at 5 a.m. since 6 a.m. And it's now, I guess, about 5.30. So uh, you're, this is my last one of the day, though. And I feel that I'm going to give it everything <laughs> I've got. I normally, you know, I phone in a lot of these things. Yeah. But, you know, you're in a far-off land, and I feel I should give you everything. Um, yeah. So 12 hours of it today. Man, that must suck. And I'm assuming you get the same questions every single day. And So we should probably not talk about your book at all. We should talk about something else completely, <laughs> just so you have a nice no, time. You know, it's funny. The, the the truth is, of course, it's great. Like I'm doing something that I love and I'm getting to promote something that I believe in, that I poured my heart and soul. And so that's obviously very cool. Yep. And one of the things that's actually been sort of interesting is when I talk to all of these interviewers, whether it's radio or podcast or people in New Zealand or Australia or Mexico or Brazil or US, Canada, whatever, it's like you get to learn about all these different cultures and just the way that people interview in different ways. And I get to kind of compare and contrast that the way I do it. And it's it's been super cool. Yeah, I could use a nap, but that's all right. <laughs> well, we're uh, I've got my Gas Monkey T-shirt on and my Houston cap, and we're very relaxed here. Um, we normally just go stream of consciousness, but I am a little Let's bit I am a little bit more prepared because we have a heart out, and I want to respect the time that you're giving us. So I do have a few things jotted down that would be cool to talk about uh, as we go along. But my first and most important question of the day is watching your uh, YouTube show, The Ruben Report. A, how many sports jackets do you have? And B, isn't that isn't that red chair really uncomfortable? <laughs> 
how many sports jackets do I have? I've probably got about 15 at this point. Um, wow. And uh, believe it or not, most of them are pretty cheap. I can You can find a decent sports jacket for about 40 bucks. Right. So so not too bad. I don't have many. I have like maybe one like nice designer one, but I got this like off the rack, like 40 bucks. Um, and uh, fortunately, that red chair was on our old set, which I don't use that often anymore. I only use it for panel shows. That thing was not very comfortable. Yeah, uh, look at it. It doesn't look comfy. Yeah, it was not very comfortable. That's one of the reasons we switched to these leather chairs because it was kind of, you know, it looked kind of cool. It was modern and it moved around, but it wasn't the most comfortable thing if you're sitting with somebody for an hour. Well, as I said to you before we started, and for people who are joining us, we are um, in my bedroom, which is a very bizarre place to be doing this after being involved in media for 20 plus years. Uh, because of the coronavirus, we've still in a, a limited access to uh, space if we don't need to be there. So if you can work from home here in New Zealand, you're asked to work from home. So whilst my king size bed is behind me and yeah. it's it's a bit weird and I get it, um, you know, maybe maybe if you and I catch up around election time, which would be fun, I'll be in I'm just gonna build a new studio in my house, which is gonna be which is gonna be more fun. So yes, we we uh, don't typically see sports jackets in my show. It's normally more like uh T shirts, caps, beers and uh good food. That's what we normally do. Well, I've got uh, I've got some club soda here. There you go, beautiful. Uh, now, for people, uh, especially in New Zealand here, who haven't maybe heard of you as much as those of us who ingest the political world intravenously, uh, yes. you're a, a political commentator. You're uh, the host of the Ruben Report, which is a, a YouTube-based online uh, conversation about mostly politics, pop culture, that sort of thing, but mostly politics is where it delves into. And you've just released a book, uh, Don't Burn This Book, Thinking of Yourself in an Age of Unreason. And we have, I understand, a world exclusive for you to, t to tell us. I'm dropping a serious world exclusive. Go for we it. We just found out about 20 minutes ago, just right before I jumped on live with you, uh, that we not only made the New York Times bestseller list, but we made two of their lists. Wow. And we are the only new nonfiction book on the list so uh you know i never thought that i was going to be an author so i wasn't like looking for this for 43 years of life but it's a pretty sweet thing and my team is thrilled and honestly i'm just I i've worked with so many great people throughout this and we've given it our heart and soul and when i was on tour with jordan peterson uh which by the way one of my few regrets of the last couple of years is that i was unable to join him for the new zealand shows i yeah. had family we were in australia first and uh, I had a family commitment that I could not get out of. So I, I had to miss it, which is such a shame because, you know, you guys are quite a distance from us and I don't know when I'll eventually get out there, but I, I think I will at some point. Um, but one of the things that Jordan said to me throughout the tour was if we're doing this, we're going to give it every, we're going to give it everything we got. Yeah. And that's what I've really tried to do with this. I'm giving it everything I got and people seem to be responding well. And, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the giving it everything you've got. And I wonder um, I, I guess I, I sort of on some level have seen witness to that because I've been talking to your team for about a year and probably for about the past six to eight months, the response has been when his book comes out, let's let's set it up for them. So so I don't, I don't mean that like in, it's taken too long, but what I the, the, the gist is you've been working on this for a while. I imagine you put a lot of time into it. Yeah. Well, first off, I appreciate you staying persistent. And I always tell my guys, you know, because people will reach out to us from from really all corners of the world. And I always say to my guys, hey, if it looks relevant, I don't care what their size of their audience is, if they look interesting or whatever, I, if I have time, I will do it. And, you know, a lot of people just drop off the map. You know, if they don't get that immediate yes, uh, they're just like, ah, screw it, I'm done. Um, so persistence is, is key in life in general. It's mm -hmm. like if you're doing something and you want to connect with other people that you think are interesting too, it's like you just got to 
you just got to keep going and going and going. But yeah, we've, I mean, I've been doing nonstop press. Uh, we're, we're working hard and, and just doing everything we can. You know, it's like, if you believe in what you're doing to, to not give it everything you've got and not bust your butt at the most important time, it's like, why are you doing it? Yeah. Well, with all that uh, interaction and all those people who have been in contact with you, I'm hoping that this is possibly the only bedroom podcast you've done. That's what I'm guessing, at least, anyway. <laughs> I hey, believe so far, yes. Okay. Hey, um, give us a, a, a... I've got a lot of things I want to talk to you about, probably too much for the time we've got allotted, but give us a snapshot of the book. Um, I've read it. I've, I've read it all. I've flicked through most of it. Um, I only got it in the last couple of days. So I've got a, a good gist of it, but just explain to the people watching and listening on the audio podcast uh, why you wrote this book and, and a brief snapshot of what it is. Yeah. So you, when I got the original deal for the book, it was going to be why I left the left, which is sort of a phrase that's been attached to me. I did a very popular PragerU video with about 20 million views about I was a lefty, I was a progressive, and then I woke up and I am no longer a lefty. And that was the deal when I signed the actual contract. It said why I left the left by Dave Rubin. And I wrote that book for about three weeks. And after about three weeks, I was kind of like, you know, I don't want to write about what I'm against. I'm writing about all these ideas I don't like. I want to write about the ideas that I do like, right. that I think are the right ideas. And I called the publishers and I had a big meeting in New York and I said, hey guys, I want to switch this thing. This isn't what I want to do. And they were amazing. No pushback whatsoever. Everybody was like, Dave, we want you to write the book you want to write. And uh, that's when I changed the idea from why I left the left to really what I do in this book is I lay out my classically liberal principles, but I also tell a bit of my story. And, and I think th by blending those two things, I think what I accomplished here was I want to show people that you don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative or pick some side that you have to agree with on 10 out of 10 issues. You're allowed to be for gay marriage and for gun rights. You're allowed to be against the death penalty and for legalization of marijuana. You're allowed to pick and choose things to, to fit into your worldview. And the important thing is not that you agree with everything I write in this book. At the end, I tell you, I hope you don't agree with everything I write. And I doubt anyone's gonna read it and agree with every single thing that I say. But I hope that you'll think about these issues seriously for yourself. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if you if you then call me up or you email me or you invite me on your podcast and you go, Dave, you know, I was reading this thing and I really disagree with you on abortion or I really disagree with you on whatever it might be. It's like, let's talk it out. That's what that's the beauty of living in free Western societies. And whether you're in New Zealand or, or America or wherever you might be, it's like we're entering this weird time where disagreement is a problem. And I actually think disagreement is, is a pretty great thing and something that we should cherish. I think one of the things the rest of the world looks to America and sees is tribalism. Um, it's really nice, meaning I'm part of my tribe and they're right no matter, no matter what. You know, and you see it at the moment in, you know, I guess supporters of Donald Trump um, being happy to accept things that they weren't happy to accept under Barack Obama, for example. And you see it on the left, for example, with uh, Joe Biden at the moment and the sexual assault allegations and the people on the left, um, not all of them, but the people on the left being happy to accept now Joe Biden, whereas Judge Kavanaugh, they weren't. So you can see this thing and, and, and it's everywhere. And I appreciate that um, you talk about both sides and both sides having, I guess, failings. Um, oh, absolutely. Would you consider yourself, though, on the right of politics? Because when you move from the left, 
I mean, because I guess what I'm asking is the the people you surround yourself with now, and even some of the write-ups for your book, and I'll read one of them, the progressive woke machine from outraged mobs and online censorship to activists masquerading as journalists is waging a war against the last free thinkers of the world. The book seems to focus quite a lot on what the left is doing wrong and not so much on... Uh, as you say in other parts of the book, that uh, that can turn the tide against authoritarians on both sides. So this book seems to be coming from the right and pointing at the left, whereas your position that you state often is, you know, both sides, both sides. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad you're asking it, and I'm, I'm happy to clear it up. Um, I do believe that the polarization that we're seeing is more of a product of what the left has become, in that liberals were supposed to be the open-minded ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, lefties and progressives were supposed to be the ones that would said, oh, we agree to disagree. You know, the free speech movement in America was was very much associated with lefties and liberals and hippies. When we think of Berkeley, the campus at Berkeley in the 60s, that was the free speech movement. The, the ACLU, which uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, which used to, you know, it did some incredible things like literally in, I believe, 1971 in Skokie, Illinois, where we had the highest population of Holocaust survivors, they defended the rights of neo-Nazis to march. That was, that was the right decision. It may be deeply upsetting and, and all of those things and their ideas may be odious, but these were leftist principles that we have to defend free speech. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, those principles have sort of been decimated by the progressives. So I always tell people, it's like, I don't know where the good liberals are. It's a little bit like Order 66 in uh, in The Revenge of the Sith, if you're a Star Wars guy. They've sort of executed the remaining last liberals. And now there's a couple Jedi you know, spread throughout the galaxy, I would say, from an American perspective, we've got Bill Maher. But there aren't really old school liberals anymore. And when I say old school liberals, I mean JFK Jr., you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That's completely the reverse of what Bernie Sanders says. But right. to specifically get to the heart of your question, would I consider myself on the right now? My answer to that is yes, actually. That I would say, in effect, a classical liberal, you believe in individual rights and the light touch of government, that's pretty much what a libertarian is thought of to believe. That's, mm-hmm. you know, we can argue on some stuff on the margins. But I would say I fall on the libertarian side of the conservative bubble. So, you know, there's sort of more traditionally religious conservatives and then there's more libertarian conservatives. And I would say in that regard, I'm sort of a libertarian conservative or a phrase that I've been saying in the last couple of days that I kind of like. If people start calling me a modern conservative, I'm yeah. actually quite OK with that, okay. meaning that you don't have to subscribe to all of the religious stuff or maybe be. You know, I I make a pro-choice argument in this book. That's one of the big no-nos for conservatives, right? You got to be pro-life to be a conservative. So I don't know that a traditional conservative would be like, oh, Ruben's a a conservative. But I think from a modern perspective, I am now trying to conserve liberalism. And I think I have to do that from the right. But I would just say one other thing on this, which is that the right-left thing almost doesn't make sense anymore in an era of Trump. Everyone is so confused about politics <laughs> yeah. that I think the, the better way to look at it rather than right and left, and I've really been trying to, to get this idea across, is that you're either an authoritarian or a libertarian. And I don't mean a libertarian uh, party member. You either believe that people can make the best decisions for themselves and build something up, yeah. and that's what I believe, or you believe that somehow the state, some sort of central planning machine can tell us all what to do, and that's the way to do it. Lefties tend to believe in the big monolithic structure that can make good for us. I believe we can make good, and hopefully we can make a decent structure, but I'm not even totally convinced of that. 
Um, one of the reasons I love speaking to, uh, especially American political commentators, is I have this philosophy that um, the sports field is like your life, right? <laughs> so you're and you're always yeah. on the sports field somewhere. Yet, no matter what sport you're playing, I always reference rugby because I'm from New Zealand. But uh, whether it's American football. Um, often when you're on the field, you can't see the game as clearly as those people who are in the stands. You can't see if the wide receiver's open, if you're the quarterback at all times, but the people in the stands can. One of the reasons I love talking to Americans about politics is I consider that some of us, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not biased in this conversation, but some of us are sitting in the stands looking down at America and sometimes going, what is all this about? This doesn't seem to make sense. And let me give you an example. The classic is the American right talking about government with a light touch or the other way it's often said as small government. Now, I think that's a red herring because I don't think big government is good and I don't think small government is good. I think good government is good. And sometimes, let's say in the time of a pandemic, perhaps big government is the best way to solve the immediacy of what's going on. And sometimes perhaps in uh, layered bureaucracies that don't need to be there with all that middle management, small government is good. And I wonder sometimes, and this maybe comes back to that tribalism question, we get lost in these conversations with these labels and rather than go, I'm for small government, why don't we start saying I'm for good government? And sometimes good government needs a lot of resource put into it. Sometimes it has too much resource put into it. But when we pull up those stakes and make our place in that camp, we sometimes get lost having to be tribal rather than uh, make a decent argument, for example. So, so it's an interesting question. Peter Thiel, who you probably know, he's the tech billionaire who co-founded PayPal. With, uh, he's, he's, got, he's got a house in New Zealand, yeah. And he's got the house in New Zealand, yeah. right? Uh, and I think he has citizenship in New Zealand. Uh, he once said to me that if any of it worked, I wouldn't be a libertarian. And I thought that that was a pretty interesting way of putting it. Now, here's a guy who's a billionaire, right? This guy can afford to do whatever he wants. He can talk to any politician within five minutes and the rest of it. And I thought there was a, there was a certain um, flippancy to the comment, like, if any of it worked, I wouldn't be a libertarian. So when you say good government, now, mm -hmm. of course, I'm with you on that. But what I think is that fundamentally you need a smaller government. So w when you said, well, in a time of pandemic, we need big government, I'm actually not sure I agree with you on that premise. So what we're finding right now in the United States is that actually our system is quite working well, is, is working quite well, I should say, because first off, we thought we were going to get huge numbers. We're getting much less numbers. People have socially distanced. Um, you know, we, the, the economy is seriously struggling. But what's happening right now is that the states each individual state, and this is in many ways a very unique American idea of federalism, yep. uh, each individual state is opening up on its own. So I would want things always to be as local as possible. So of course, do I want good government? Yes, I want Texas to make the right decisions for Texas. That's gonna be very different than what New York needs or what California needs or elsewhere. So I think probably, I think the spirit of what you're saying I agree with, but I think the in, in a functional sense, do we all want good government? Yeah, we want we want good government. I actually think the only way to get good government is to shrink government. The, the, the monster has become so big and such a sucking money machine at all times that the only way to make it good is to slim it. And how do you slim it? You give it less money. Well, let's give you an example, a concrete example of why I don't. It's, it's not that I disagree with you because on some issues I'd say smaller is fine. 
But let's get away from the current, um, you know, um, headlines and the current bullet points that sure. political people. And let's look at when the, and, and this is notes I've got, this is just going off the dome now, is yep. the, you know, um, smaller government equals fewer people inspecting oil rigs, leading to one of the uh, reasons that was blamed for what happened in the Gulf of Mexico all those years ago, well, a decade or so ago. And smaller government means less inspectors in those areas. Smaller government meaning uh, fewer restrictions around uh, companies that can pollute our natural path, uh, natural areas. I, I, I don't think the statement always smaller is better is backed up with, as you talk about in your book, facts rather than uh, emotions. Well, you're talking about specific um, yes. regulations, specific regulations related to the environment. As a general rule, I, I, I sense we just don't see eye to eye on this, which is totally fine, by okay. the way. Um, yeah, I am, I am for, generally speaking, cutting back regulation. You know, even in, in uh, time of corona right now, one of the things we've been doing is cutting back some of the red tape related to what we can do medically so that we can get some new technologies out, so we can get some new medicines out go to trial faster than keeping everything in the lab and the rest of it. And it's like, yeah, we suddenly need stuff. So what are we doing? We're getting rid of, rid of regulation. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be any regulation, um, but I don't know that that's exactly a big government or small government thing. There's probably much better ways to do regulation than we had or than we have. But if you're, if you're asking me, well, should offshore oil rigs be allowed to do absolutely whatever they want so they can penny pinch every which way to maximize profits at the expense of the environment and ex at the expense, by the way, of national security and all sorts of stuff. Well, no, I am for some regulation related to that. The question is really, I think, is regulation done properly? I'm mm -hmm. not sure that the answer to that is yes all the time. But well, that, no, I'm sure the answer isn't yes all the time. But that comes the back to is, the good government, uh, regulation well, that's right. done correctly. So correctly. that's where so that's where we're sort of having it's in a, in a weird way we are agreeing on this that yes the goal ultimately is good government i think the only way to get to good government is you have to strip so much of it away that it has to operate more efficiently that would be something like you know right now i have a small business mm -hmm. and we've been able to survive corona because i've made sure that all along i didn't have debt we had low overhead yep. i did the things responsibly so that when we came to a time of of crisis like we're in right now, I made sure that I was going to be able to pay my guys and the rest of it. So we're doing okay right now. That's how I'd prefer the government operate rather than be some sort of bloated thing. And then suddenly in a time of crisis, we're like, ah, we really need you. And it's sort of like this giant monster that can't quite coordinate. So the, the good and small thing, we could probably keep going with it and whittle it into something, you know, really interesting there. Um, yeah, I, I guess I think about the current situation in America, and, and speaking from the outside looking in, I don't know how anyone can think that the current outcome with coronavirus is a good thing. I was looking at the numbers last night. Uh, the the There's no flattening of the curve, as that classic saying is going on at the moment. There's no drop-off of um, active cases. One, one of the things that I've seen in countries like New Zealand, who, for very different reasons from America, have had a very good response to this, is that the number of active cases have been going down. For America to have less than 5% of the world's population, but between 25 and 40% of the cases, deaths, and active cases, it does. And look, and being fair, you know, Africa hasn't been included yet. I'm not saying it's going to stay like that, but I'm not sure how anyone can look at the current 
stats around what's happening in the American coronavirus, and I'm not saying you've done this, but just in general, yeah. and sort yeah. of be happy with the situation right now and be comfortable for like full reopening and thinking that it's going to then get better. I think with the reopening, my, my opinion, which I hope I'm wrong 100%, is that America hasn't seen the worst of it yet, especially if they move towards reopening too soon. Well, you might be right about that. That's the question that everyone's trying to face is how long do we stay in lockdown and what is each individual state? I I haven't heard anyone say, oh, let's do a full reopen tomorrow and let's just flip the switch and do it. I haven't heard anyone say that. What I've heard people say is more in line with what's happening in Texas right now, Mm -hmm. which is they're having a partial reopen. They're going to open up restaurants and open up stores and public places, but less people will be able to go in. I think they're going to still encourage social distancing. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it'll be on up to individual people, whether they're wearing masks or not. I think this is is sort of the messiness of a free society, is you want to allow people to be free, and you have to weigh that against, in this case, you know, public public health. Um, But, you know, there's the famous phrase, you know, if you, or the famous saying, uh, those who would give up security, uh, liberty for security, deserve neither. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some element of that playing it out. There will never be a point when we can open up because there's zero risk. There's always gonna be some level of risk. And, and the best that you can hope for, I think, is that your local elected officials, wherever you are, have looked at the numbers and can give you mature answers to things. So I'll, I'll give you just one interesting example on this. Sure. In California, you may have seen in the last couple of days, we've closed down the beaches here completely. Mm-hmm. Now, instead of explaining to us why they did it or why it was necessary or where the numbers are, they didn't really do that. Instead, they just said the beaches are closed, that's it. Now, what would have been a mature response, and I think more in line with some of the things that you're talking about, is they should have said to us, look, we can't. it's beautiful out right now. We know you all want to go to the beaches. You can't go to the beaches at the numbers you normally would. So what we're going to do is we're going to do it at a third capacity. You have to make sure, or a half capacity, whatever it is, Uh, You have to make sure that when you park your car, your car has to be one spot away from the the closest, you know, there has to be an open spot between you and the next car. We're going to set lines on the beach with tape or whatever that, you know, groups of four or less can be there. You have to be six feet away. Like giving us a sort of robust, honest response to what this is. And I think people would respond to that well. I think when you say to people, yeah, I do. I think when you just say that, maybe that's a uniquely American thing. But I think when you're honest, or at least attempt to be honest with Americans, they'll accept that. But when you just say to them, hey, we're closing the whole thing down, that's when people get annoyed. So I I wish we had better communication from our our leaders. I was talking to a a New Zealand comedian who lives in uh, upstate New York a few weeks ago on the podcast. And one of the things he said was, could you imagine Americans being told what to do and following the instructions? So I say really it's like it's based on – because you also talk – Freedom, individual rights, individual liberty. But now on the other side of that, you're saying, um, you know, stay in these queues, park your car here and stay in these things. Those seem to be contradictory to one another. And I did think as you were speaking, and I am placing my tongue firmly in my cheek here, setting, (laughs) setting up that system sounds very big government to me. Lines on the beach, you know, all that kind of stuff. That sounds like very, very Orwellian big government to me. So and and that's when Uh, I kind of go, that's when I kind of go, it feels sometimes... Like the picking and choosing is a little bit, and I'm not saying you're showing hypocrisy, but the ideas or the ideologies of the, it's like when a government, sorry, when a company in America goes, 
you know, uh, market rates, uh, the, the consumer decides, we rise and fall based on that. And then when there's a GFC or a, a pandemic, they put the hand out to the government and they say, give me a subsidy. They kind of want to have their so, foot in both camps. So I'm more, I'm more with you on that one. Okay. In terms of how we, how, I'm more with you on that in terms of how we do bailouts and things like that, right? We had banks that were too big to fail. And what did we do? We made them bigger. So I'm, yeah. I'm with you on, on the secondary part. But the other part, as far as big government, you know, I would say big government is when the government announces something and then you have no way to combat it. So when the government just says the beaches are closed, that's it. I don't view telling us that we have to have some regulations, which is what you're calling for around how we behave. Yeah. I don't view that as big government. If anything, what I laid out there, if you, if you do some distancing and things like that, that's what I would view as I think what you called before good government, that good government would level with us in an honest way. That's not to say that, look, you need government to do it. This is where I'm saying I'm not a Mad Max, no government, <laughs> you know, Fury Road, let's figure it out guy. I, I would want good government to do limited controls if if absolutely necessary. Um, it makes me think as well, I just, a thought popped into my head and popped out again about good, good government versus bad, especially when you're live streaming, that's the worst thing in the world to, to possibly happen. Um, that's right. You would acknowledge, though, I'm sure, that what you've laid out as acceptable regulations and I'm using the word good government and you're kind of saying maybe that would be it, then there will be other people who are perhaps on the right further than you who would still go, stay out of my life, government, that's too much regulation. Oh, and that's yeah, And sure. that's when you get the tribalism that feels like, and I know that all over the world we kind of get the five percent on each end of every story spectrum telling us the worst or the best case scenario when most of us live in the middle but with that good governance there will be a sector that'll still say too much too much too much for sure there will be there are going to be people who do whatever they want no yeah, matter yeah. what right we're, we're free people in a free society and we have all sorts of thoughts and and, you, and look unless you want to pull a thanos and get rid of a lot of people <laughs> uh you know you can't really do that you can't, meaning you can't really stop individuals from doing some things. But I, I should note that your your friend, uh, the comedian in, in upstate New York, you know, for two months, Americans have done it. We've been at home. We haven't been rioting. We haven't been looting. It's only in the last, say, 10 days that we're seeing some of the protests in Michigan and in Texas and a couple of places else. So even though Americans do have this, what I would say is a really special, uniquely individual spirit, yeah. For about six weeks, we all kind of sat quietly. We all kind of said, hey, government, figure it out. Let us do our thing. You know, we'll stay home like hamsters in a cage. And now, <laughs> finally, I think people are starting to get fed up. Now, whether that's correctly um, aimed at the government or not is a different issue. Sure. But for six weeks, we did it in America. And it's very against our, our sort of a free-loving ethos to do that sort of thing. Do you think um, that's a lesson for future governments to learn? You can have six weeks of our time, but after that, yeah, we're done. So that's... I think maybe, we, yeah, we might have learned something <laughs> at, at six weeks is the cutoff. You guys have six weeks to make it up, and then we got to figure it out from there. It just makes me think, and, and I'm using a, a parallel or analogy here, which maybe isn't fair, but I can't imagine a cancer patient being told, you likely can beat this with 10 sessions of chemo, and after six sessions, they go, yeah, no, that's enough for me. I'm out. You know, which it seems like what you're saying is like the, the medical people. Look, we, we've been through five weeks of shutdown here in New Zealand. And I mean shutdown, shutdown. The only people that were basically allowed outside their houses were essential workers for the whole country. And now we've been through two to three weeks of one step below that, 
where we basically want people to stay at home. So we've kind of had seven to eight weeks of either complete or 90% shutdown. And the likely scenario is next week we can we can get to a, a level two, which is not back to normal, but is but is very different. And I'm not. I don't want to compare directly because we're an island nation and we don't have, you know, seven different uh, states on around our borders with slightly different laws. But I feel like, without sounding like a government toady, <laughs> um, <laughs> that even though there are complaints here and there are there are people saying, "Oh, I'm sick of this," when people had the opportunity to send their kids back to school and back to daycare, less than five percent of parents did, meaning that we have actually gone whilst this is an inconvenience, we understand this is the best case scenario for us to return to a you know, more normal life. Like the cancer patient going, shall I just say fuck it after six episode uh, after six sessions or shall I go all the way through to 10 and give it the best chance of beating it? Yeah, but I don't really like that analogy because okay. you know when you take when you when you take chemo and you go through all that stuff, it's also killing you and it's quite brutal. And sometimes people don't survive that. Well, whatever and, the and that, whatever the analogy is, if medical people were saying you need ten of X, and we decided to go, man, I'm sick of it after six. Right. Well, I don't know that there's been that communicated to us that oh, if we only as a nation had four more weeks of this that it would be fine. So I think this again goes to the government communicating clearly right. where we're at with things. And, and what I'm saying is they don't. Instead, they say the beaches are closed and we should just say the beaches are closed and that's that. As opposed to, forget all the, forget all the stuff I said about putting tape on the beach and everything else. How about you just say, you know what? If you're under 30 and you're healthy, you can go to the beach. And we, we ask that you stay six feet away from people. And there will be some cops that, you know, we'll offer citations if you if you don't do that. That would be, again, some way of allowing people to live because there will be no, I think what you're laying out here is, oh, if you do this for 10 weeks, then we know on the other side, things are going to be okay. And I just don't see that as sort of a, a real, I, I like the idea of it. Like, I love it. If, they, if there was a, a true virologist out there that could prove that, you got me. Uh, but I don't sense that person coming. I'm pretty sure I've seen the head of the CDC uh, on various news networks, probably a week, a week and a half ago, saying we need at least two more weeks nationwide shutdown. But but I don't have those numbers or that info in front of me, so so we can leave that there. Because I do want to go into something, bouncing back to something you were talking about, about shops, etc., opening up. Uh, you tweeted out, uh, and I've just taken a screenshot, so I'm not sure how long ago it was, Shelley Luther is a true American hero. And yeah. um, people who don't know the story, Shelley Luther, Shelley Luther had a uh, salon who had people working for her, she reopened amongst a lockdown level she wasn't supposed to. The judge said to her, basically, if you apologize for it, then we'll we'll not have any, you know, uh, no punishment, so to speak. She refused to, so she got seven days in jail. Um, I see that as actually a failing of government because other Western countries are providing an amount for the workers so they can feed their kids during this time, whether it means they do need to borrow or they don't need to borrow. So this is probably an example that I see without being honest, without knowing 100% of the, all the facts, but following it two or three times in two or three different news sources, um, that seems that's a place where government should step in, make those people safe, uh, supply money to those workers to be able to feed their kids. And then it wouldn't even be a question to be in the courtroom talking to the judge. 
So, yeah, so we're back to the good government thing, which is, yeah, I'm with you. If the government's going to tell people you can't go to work, then the government better figure out a way to make sure that people's kids aren't going hungry, which is exactly what Shelley Luther said. Uh, that tweet actually was from this morning. So the trial, oh, okay. uh, the, the, the court appearance was this morning. And, you know, what she decided to do was she was going to make sure everyone wore masks. She was very clear about what the hygiene procedures were going to be. Yep. She was going to make sure people were social distancing. She was putting in place all of the policies that anyone would want her to put in. And let's also keep in mind that she's a small businesswoman. She's, as she said, trying to feed her kids and yep. her stylist. She's trying to make sure they can feed theirs. Um, but, you know, we've done this weird thing where big businesses have allowed to remain open. So Target and Walmart are giant stores. You can go to the giant stores and it's not a problem. But we've closed down small businesses that in many cases do the same thing as the, as the big businesses. They just do it for, as a mom and pop operation. That strikes me as deeply unfair. So here was a woman who tried to take her destiny in her hands and say, I have to reopen because I haven't been provided with what I need to provide for my family. So I'm going to do it responsibly. She laid out a video where she showed exactly how she was going to deal with the the hygienic stuff and all that. And in my estimation, the idea that they're going to put her in jail or even that the, the, the judge said to her, you have to apologize for this. I thought the reason I said she's a true American hero is her response to the judge was, I will not apologize for, for trying to put uh, food on the, my kid's table and my employee's kid's table. And I thought that was, that was very much within the American spirit. Is it very much a first world Western problem? You know, people would say, um, your yeah, first world problem that often uh, wherever people sit politically or wherever they sit in society, they may be very pro-law uh, and order, pro-police, pro-laws you know laws and rules until they affect them. Because I, I hear what you're saying, and possibly that's all fine. The flip side to that same conversation is if someone had to come through that uh, salon and caught coronavirus and died because of it, um, then actually... That would be on their hands as well, her hands as well. And so maybe making the decision which feels really difficult and really hard to keep people safer is more important than the financial one, which again, I guess, kind of brings me back to, so like here in New Zealand, um, businesses can apply for, I think it's 80% of the wages of their employees subsidy, and the government will pay that whilst the lockdown's on. That seems to be good government. Yeah. So again, if, if you're if you're going to tell people they can't work, I believe good government would provide them sustenance so that they would be OK. As to your question related to if someone had then gotten coronavirus there. Well, first, she laid out the plans that she was going to do. I'm not an insurance expert, so I don't know exactly <laughs> I, I don't know exactly what would have been covered or who would have been covered or the liability related to that. You'd have to talk to a, a very specific type of lawyer, because obviously a lot of this is unfolding right now. Um, but I just can't fault somebody for trying to open their business in a difficult time when they're trying to feed their kids. I, I just can't do it. I think you cannot get perfect security. And if you trade your liberty for it, you will lose both. Um, the book is called uh, Don't Burn This Book. Well, that's the main headline of it. Thinking for yourself in an age of unreason. We'll have a link on the Facebook page on the uh, YouTube clip and also on the iTunes clip as to where people can get it in New Zealand um, so it is being sold online I'm interested, the idea seems to be with the Don't Burn This book that there is an accusation when you're talking about the woke machine 
that the left are the ones suppressing this free thinking, free thought ideas, the woke left. And look, I will agree with you on, on I mean, I, when I see, you know, um, the, the protests at various universities stopping people thinking, I think it's ridiculous, right? So I'm with you on that. But this tribalism that we come back to, it seems to me to be mispointed at the progressive woke machine being the only ones that do this because the conservative, perhaps alt-right, certainly Christian conservative, also seem to be a, a group within America that do like to suppress free thought and free speech quite a lot. And I can give you some examples if you like. Uh, yeah, give me give me an example or two, a, a recent example. Okay, I'll give you the last two years from the American Libraries Association Office for Intellectual Freedom. The books that have been most challenged and most banned, attempted to be banned, I haven't written the list of them because I just wanted to be able to rip through it. But in 2019, yeah. eight out of 10 of the books that were challenged or banned were challenged by Christian conservative groups based on LGBT concerns. Uh, one out of the 10 was unclear whether it was the left or the right. It was Handmaid's Tale. I guess you could say either side could complain about that one. And <laughs> right. one out of the 10 was conservative Christians because it was a Harry Potter book. Uh, the year before that, 2018, this is from the ALA, the American Libraries Association, five out of the 10 of the most... Uh, you know, the books that were most tried to be banned or suppressed were from Christian conservative groups based on LGBT issues. One out of the 10 was from a Christian conservative group based on disruptive behavior, believe it or not. We're talking Captain Underpants. True story. Uh, one out of 10 was, a, conser guy, was yeah. a conservative group because the book was, quote, anti-cop. One out of 10 was unclear, which was 13 reasons. I can understand how both sides might have an issue with the, the suicide and that. Uh, another one out of 10 was unclear because it was based on gambling and underage drinking. And one out of 10 was a left-wing group because of Mexican stereotypes. But both of those, and you go back through 18, 17, 16, 15, and it's the same. Yeah. 80 to 90% of these books that have been challenged, that are being looked to be suppressed, that people want banned, which was kind of the equivalent of burned, are from conservative right-wing groups, not from the woke yeah. left groups. So let me let me be clear about something that I've been saying in almost all the interviews that I've been doing. The, the, the side that flips to authoritarianism, I do believe is a cyclical thing. So if you were to look back 20 years ago, what were the conservatives doing? They were trying to get Mortal Kombat banned from video <laughs> game stores. You remember that? Because they yeah. thought it was too violent and it was uh, you know rotting kids' minds and it was causing violence. By the way, there's no scientific evidence that violent video games cause violence. So I am completely with you that, that outrage culture and mobs and silencing is absolutely not um, not part and parcel of only one side. Both sides do it. I would say that the difference is this, that on the left right now, there has become a sort of conformity of thought that if you don't buy into all of these ideas, you're basically going to be kicked out on your butt. And we've seen a million examples of this, of which I could lay out for you. On the right, something different's happening. Now, that's not to say that there aren't Christian groups that try to ban books or things like that, but you know, you might find it interesting that I spoke at Liberty University. It's the largest evangelical college in the United States. I spoke in front of 14,000 people. Mm -hmm. they, know, they know that I'm married to a man. I'm pro-choice. I mean, they're actually pro-choice and abortion is a bigger issue to them than gay marriage. But I spoke in front of them. I got a standing ovation. They were, they were tolerant and decent and, and all of those things. Now, of course, that doesn't mean they all are. But in this case, that happens to be the largest evangelical college. So I do think that they've shifted a little bit. I think the difference on the right, let me, let me just yeah, say sorry. one thing. The, the, the difference on the right, though, is right now, look, in my book, I, I make a pro-choice argument. As I just said, that's the biggest no-no for the people on the right. Uh, I lay out a bunch of other things that people on the right generally aren't thrilled with. Some people on the right, as you said, they're not thrilled with gay marriage. Some people on the right aren't 
thrilled with uh, legalized weed. I'm also against the death penalty. Most people on the right are for it. But what I find is that people on the right are more than happy to discuss those things. Glenn Beck, Dennis Prager, Ben Shapiro, some of our most popular and influential figures on the right. These are my friends. These are people who I sit down with and I break bread with and we debate these things publicly and privately and they're happy to do it. There happens to be right now with a certain hysteria around leftism, there is a less desire, a significantly less desire to uh, debate ideas. And that is a problem. And, and the one other thing I'll say to this is just look what's happening on college campuses. If yep. you're a conservative, you get booted off campuses and they'll drown you out and protest you and all that. Now, protest is within their right as an American. But I mean, if you do it violently or pull fire alarms, that's a problem. But it's very rare that a speaker, a left wing speaker, will come to a college and the right wing people will protest them. If anything, they either protest peacefully or they just say, ah, that person's speaking, I'm not going to go. So it's not exactly uh, equal right now. The, the left thing, at least from an American perspective, but I can't say just from an American perspective, because I, I find this in many places all over the world, the left thing has gotten more out of control uh, at the moment. I think from sitting in the grandstand, looking down at the, uh, the field of the American life, it feels like what you, and I respectfully say this, have it wrong, is you're not talking about the left, you're talking about the far left. And I think there is, no, it's, it's there is a difference. it's over the entire left. I, I, if there is, I don't know what the left is if it's not that thing. They're, all of their politicians basically buy into identity politics. Uh, we, we, we just went through this primary process here in America where nobody talked about the Constitution or the Bill of Rights or freedom or any of those things. All they talk about is government how government can do everything. I don't buy, I don't believe that that's a guiding principle. I think that's a, that's a dangerous guiding principle if it's a danger, if it's a principle at all. Um, I don't know any, there's just unfortunately no Democrats left or lefties publicly anywhere that, that will stand up against this machine. I think Biden was sort of the last old school one and it's pretty obvious that he's not the guy to do it. Um, so it's not that it's the far left. Where are the good liberals? I, I can't find them. As I said before, Bill Maher is still a, a free speech liberal, but in effect, they've they've been decimated. But by the way, this whole book is a defense of liberalism. <laughs> I mean, that's the point of the book. The book is a defense of liberalism. The book is a freaking rallying cry to the lefties to say, hey, guys, let's be liberal again. If if that if that gets a, th a through to the lefties and, and there's suddenly a resurgence of liberalism, man, I will retire and be a happy man. <laughs> I think um, I, I will still agree to disagree that I think may, maybe because I see it here in New Zealand more so than is demonstrated in America of there being a left and a far left, a right and a far right. Um, I think it makes complete logical sense why you get those, and I don't say that to condone it, by why you get those results at universities because of the old saying, if you're not a liberal when you're young, you've got no heart. If you're not a conservative when you're old, you've got no brain. Yeah. There aren't yeah. The alt-right don't make up much of an 18-year-old American fraternity. But the far left do. I think that's not necessarily a testament to, you know, how bad the woke culture is. I think that's testament to so many more 17, 18, 19 year olds go as far as they can in their new beliefs and their left. And that's sort of a natural thing. Again, not to condone it, but just to explain why you don't see alt right 17 year olds protesting on the university campuses because they're not there. I mean, you know, in, in any great yeah, number. But 
Yeah, but that that's not exactly a fair example because there are plenty of conservatives that whatever they're, you know, young conservatives. When I get invited to things, I'm usually invited by young conservatives or young libertarians. Uh, they they have no problem with lefty speakers coming to campus. They just let them talk. But when mainstream conservative thinkers come to campuses, they're the ones that get shouted down and attacked and the rest of it. So, yes, I agree. There aren't necessarily a lot of truly alt-right racist 18-year-olds <laughs> I didn't say at, they ma- would. <laughs> at, at major universities, fortunately, I suppose. Um, but that, but it's not exactly an equal equation because the, the lefties that are shouting them down are mainstream lefties and the, the conservatives that tolerate them are mainstream conservatives. But I will. I think maybe also what our disconnect here a little bit is, and, and again, it's totally all good. I, mm. I, this is actually what it's all about. Um, you in New Zealand, I don't know enough about the New Zealand political winds of the day. You, you guys may have a stronger sense of old school liberalism that is standing up to some of the far left stuff. In America, it seems to have the ship seems to have sailed. From a UK perspective, I know that UK sort of has like a more li- classically liberal perspective that is still standing a little bit as they've pushed some of the Labour Party, the more fringe Labour Party voices out with Jeremy Corbyn losing. So I, so I can't totally speak to the New Zealand part. I won't even pretend that I can. Well, it'll be fun to get you down here and maybe do a face-to-face one day and we can, we can chat over it in great deal over, over a good Kiwi beer. I would love to do that, absolutely. Hey, listen, there's a couple of things I want to cover. I know we've, only, we've got less than 10 minutes left, but yep. I wanted to ask you a, a bit of an open-ended question and it is making an assumption. I wanted to ask you, from your perspective, what's wrong with my healthcare in New Zealand? The US doesn't want um, healthcare like the rest of the Western world. Where have we got it wrong and you guys got it right? So I will be completely honest with you. I don't know about your healthcare system enough, the New Zealand healthcare system specifically. But if you mean broadly, you mean socialized healthcare? Let me, let the... me give you a concrete example. My mum passed yeah. away 18 months ago. Uh, she passed Sorry away from that. motor neuron disease. She had a bed sent over from Germany, a chair sent over from, I think, Japan. Uh, the best care looked after, probably at the end, spent six or seven nights in hospital, along with a couple of visits along the way through. Not a cent went out of my parents' pocket, all paid for by by taxes. Uh, if I get up off my chair and walk out the door and slip and break my ankle, I go to A&E, the emergency department, I get my legs set, I put the get the casket on. I was going to say, and I walk out. I hop out. I use my crutches. <laughs> if you walk no, out, then no, you guys are really doing it right. No money changes hands. So yes, um, what you see with the NHS in the UK, I guess, without a direct comparison, but if you want to call it socialized medicine, where have we got it wrong? And America's got it so right that it rejects it outright. Yeah. So this is the balance between sort of public and and private. Um, I I actually don't have an inherent problem with trying to provide healthcare for everybody. This is actually where I would say, if you can give me some good government that is not totally bloated, that I actually think that providing healthcare, especially to the most needy, I find that to be a lofty goal and maybe that is a good place for government to do some things. What I don't want though, is just some government Medicare for all thing that we know won't be a highly functional uh, system and will rather be a money suck and you'll wait forever for doctors and good doctors won't even want to be part of it and they'll all completely privatize in some other ways because they know that the system of balances will be completely out of whack and they won't be able to make money and the rest of it. I think doctors deserve to make as much money as they can. So what I would prefer to have, and we were in many ways on the way to this, I would prefer to have individual private uh, health insurance companies compete as much as possible for the best possible prices, but then you probably could do that within 
some framework where the government could help subsidize some of the costs. So let's say you got 10 health insurance companies across the nation. I would also, by the way, one of the issues we have here in America is whether you're allowed to take your health insurance over state borders. I mm -hmm. would allow everybody to do that. If you have health insurance in Virginia and you move to New York, you should be able to take your health insurance with you. Uh, again, I want to give people as much choice as possible. But I view the health insurance thing as something like this. You pick probably 10, you know, handful of private insurance companies. They all compete for services and prices. So you're hopefully keeping the costs down. Then you get the government to come in. And if they can figure out a way to subsidize some of the products or help some of the doctors or drive down those costs a little bit. And I know this is where my libertarians friends will say, hey, once you get the government involved, you've actually just inflated everything. But I think there is some way to do something that's that's part private and part public. I think I don't, I don't think yeah I, I don't think we've perfect. Well, we certainly haven't perfected. It, it seems to me, for someone with not you personally, but people who believe in a market force and and don't want to uh, involve you know extra levels of bureaucracy, why would you include the insurance companies at all? If you're going to include the government, just use the government. And I'll give you an example of how. Well, because I because I fundamentally believe that competition actually drives costs down and makes better service. It's not working in America at the moment, though, is it? And let me give you a tangible example again of good government. So I had New Zealand's health minister on last year in the podcast when I didn't have to be in my freaking bedroom and I could be in my studio. Um, and, I <laughs> said, and I said to him, what, what, what do we say to our American friends about how our system works? And very simply, one of the things he says is we have a group here called Pharmac that doesn't buy you know 10 tablets of drug X, they buy 10 million. That drives the price down. That means, and, and then they subsidize us getting um, drug X and we pay $5 at our pharmacy for any uh, any pills we need to have. So whether it's a $1,000 a month subscription to a very serious uh, cancer treatment or whether it's a $25 a month asthma puffer, costs us $5 at the pharmacy. And it's based on the government spending a huge amount of money more than individual companies could to drive the price down and then they put another subsidy on top. That seems to be good government to me and the way that we keep our prices down to the end consumer. Yeah, that actually doesn't sound very far from what I just laid out there, except I added a free market element to it, which is you get a bunch of health insurance companies competing, which hopefully drives some costs down. And then, as I said, at the end of that, then you get the government to come in and figure out ways to subsidize things. So maybe in this case, it's to buy a tremendous amount of one drug so that the drug then is able to be gotten by the health insurance companies or by the primary care physicians at a much cheaper price. So I don't I don't inherently have a problem with something like that. I just like to keep some level of, of free market involved in it. Um, last question. I hear yes. this I hear this a lot from Americans, um, and I don't mean that <laughs> in, in, a, in a lovely uh -oh. way. We're, we're number one. Greatest country yes. in the world. Greatest country there's ever been. I'm, I've always wondered about that. And the question I've always wanted to ask someone who, who potentially has the knowledge to give me a, a, an informed answer, you're involved in the political world, you, you obviously have your finger on the pulse, is what's the metric you use to measure that statement? Because when I look up things like OECD numbers, etc., America doesn't seem to be number one statistically in very, very many categories other than children killed by guns, children killed by cars, number of incarcerated citizens per capita. And I think people who believe in angels, 
I think they're some of the areas where statistically it's number We're one. Probably high in the angel thing. I don't know the numbers <laughs> on it, but we definitely are high. But in I the angel just thing. I've always wondered what's the metric behind that. What what? How do you measure that statement? I know that Usain Bolt is the fastest person in the world. There's a metric. He gets to the end of the hundred meters first in the quickest time. What's the metric that that statement can be measured by to see America is the greatest country in the world? Because you don't hear other countries saying it, which means the other citizens don't have that same. If it's just fervor and pride. Other countries don't seem to, to do that, so I'm wondering what is that metric? Yeah, no, I think I think it's something much deeper than than just sort of national pride or something else. America is an experiment, unlike any other experiment that's ever taken place in modern times. The experiment was: could we create laws that would make everyone equal, and then could we say to everybody from the world, "We will take your poor and your tired and your huddled masses." And we will bring you all here and you are welcome to bring your customs and your religions and your backgrounds and your ethnicities and your traditions, all of those things. Can you come here and then become part of the fabric of America, meaning not give up all of those things, but actually become what we call a melting pot where you bring those things. But then it's, it's sort of blended into the beautiful stew of that. We believe in freedom here. We believe in individual choice and things like that. And what we did in the course of that, in only 230 some odd years, what we did was we actually created a situation where people from everywhere, literally every inch of the earth, have come to America. And in almost every single case, it's, it's almost impossible to find a case where it didn't happen. In almost every single case, their children have it better than them, and then their children have it better than them, and then their children have it better than them. And it doesn't matter if you're Irish or Greek or Jewish or Italian or Jamaican or Indian or anything else. It basically has worked. And that is not to say we've done all these things right, and it's not to say our education is run the best way or any of those other things. Do we have an issue with guns? We absolutely have an issue with guns. I think that has far more to do um, with mental health than anything else, but that, that's a separate issue entirely. That's our next I conversation. What, I, I, yeah, that's a different conversation. But what I think America, I think what makes America great, what, the reason I believe it's an, an exceptional country is because it is an ongoing experiment. We didn't say, oh, it's all people of one ethnicity, it's all people of one geographic location or any of that stuff. Yeah, you had to come here, so it, it has a geographic border, but we've offered opportunity. That, you know what I mean? That's what we've done. We've offered opportunity. And when people come here, almost everyone grasps that opportunity and makes it better for the person behind them. And that, that's a pretty special thing. I, I feel like, and maybe this is my uh, non-American bias, because <laughs> I, I love my country. I feel like what you're saying would be more accurately described that America set up to be the best country in the world. Because... You know, I've been involved in the news media for 20 plus years and whether it's a mosque at uh, ground zero after 9-11 or whether it's, uh, you know, Muslims coming in from other parts of the world, there doesn't seem to be that same welcoming, come on board, bring your culture, um, you know, in integrate with us that there no, once was. No, not, I mean, yeah, we can just agree to disagree on mm. that. Like, no. We've, in, we've invited everybody here. We're not kicking anybody out. If you're here legally, we're happy to have you and you have the opportunity to make a better life. I mean, Muslim Americans are as much fabric, uh, the society, as much part of the fabric of the society that is America as any other people. Uh, they are. They, they really are. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just simply a fact. And I guess, and, and it's time for us to wrap up, but 
This is one of the things. Maybe we can talk again. Maybe you've enjoyed it enough to come absolutely. back again in the future. I have, I have absolutely. Because one of the things we could start with was I always find it fascinating that you know, give me your meddled, your meddled, your your huddled masses, all the, the you know, on the base of the Statue of Liberty, and you know, all men are created or equal. I always find it interesting that those things were written at the same time people owned other people and considered them of- lesser. So, so uh, I I I think it's a really I think the whole idea of what you're talking about is fantastic. I'm not going to challenge you on it. We can agree to disagree. But I think there are 1,700 layers to go through to maybe talk that out and see where we come to. I'd be happy to discuss it another <laughs> time. If I had more time, I really would continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll, just say, I'll just say one thing quickly on that because I mention this all the time. The, the founders, you know, they were people of their time. So did George Washington own slaves? He did. Did Thomas Jefferson own slaves? He did. And guess what? Thomas Jefferson was also writing the laws that freed the slaves. And then when we freed the slaves, we then allowed black people to vote. We then allowed women to vote. We then allowed gay people to get married. So over the course of time, we have always worked to free more people, not enslave more people or take more people's rights away. So I think some of that is just sort of the arc of, of justice that we have done a good, it's sort of like the macro version versus the micro version but my my guys my guys giving yeah, me the yeah, signal yeah, i gotta yeah. jump on the next one hey, but I've, been, I've enjoyed talking to you and i hope to make it out to new zealand at some point dave rubin it's been a pleasure um the book is don't burn this book come to our facebook page find the links for the facebook page you will um get links to if you want to buy it in new zealand and of course it's available on amazon and all over the world uh the rubin report on youtube dave rubin thanks so much for uh, joining us today really did appreciate it i like the bedroom keep up the good work <laughs> All right, team, that's us done and dusted. The Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. i got some fun guests coming up in the next few podcasts. As has been the case in this current climate, we are having to say who's coming up just a few days out. So I'll wait till next week to explain who's coming up next week. But coming up next, which would be tomorrow as we record this, is co-leader of the Greens, Marama Davidson. Marama Davidson will be joining us on the live stream from 10.30 in the morning if you want to watch it. If you want to see the video, of course, head to the Facebook page or the YouTube page. But of course, this is the audio version you're listening to. So you can continue to get conversations with Marama and all of our other guests right here on whatever your preferred choice of distributor of audible podcasts is if that makes any sense whatsoever big thanks again to uh, thanks again to stratus for sponsoring the show uh, you want to find out more about them especially if you want to help someone stop smoking or if you want to stop smoking head to vaporium.nz uh, a hassle-free reliable compact pod kit that's what stratus is all right team stay safe uh in new zealand here it looks like we could be coming out of level three sometime soon but i'll still say it wash your hands hug a loved one watch something on the telly that makes you laugh and until we see you next time hey root